Nelson Mandela had so much compassion for his brothers and sisters. People don't realize it's about the Beatles, but they knew they were brilliant. One story in every human being that defines who you are. Do we film on a volcano that's just about to explode? But the reason this mail pack has been astoundingly successful is because there are pictures of rabbits on the envelope. I mean, I think there's something about chaos, right? It either, either you run from it or you run towards it. And for me, there was really this in instance of wanting to run towards it. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Dr. Samantha Nutt, and she is based in Toronto. She's Canadian-born, though we're going to talk about Durban early on. Uh, and she is the founder, visionary, uh, CEO, and true frontline warrior for an organization called War Child Canada. And War Child is a global organization uh, Samantha founded and leads the Canada edition, if you will, of War Child. And we're going to talk a lot about that. But Samantha, you have been to some of the most challenged, dicey, dangerous places in the world. Take us back to that first time when you landed as a young physician um, in Somalia. What do you remember from that time? You know, it it was um, it was funny because I I was midway through my postgraduate degree and and as a young doctor you have a certain amount of confidence you believe that you are trained and qualified uh, you think that humanitarian aid is pretty straightforward that you're being deployed especially as a public health doctor to to try to stop epidemics to try to make sure people have the tools and the resources and the healthcare support that they need to be able to survive. And I would say that I arrived feeling quite confident um, in my skills and my capacity. And it didn't take very long, just a matter of days before um, I was really confronted by uh, the, not only the scale of need, but the complexity of the challenges and the limitations of just straight clinical medicine in, in really solving some of the longer term challenges and needs that populations, vulnerable, popu vulnerable populations were facing. And this was during the famine. A difficult and bloody civil war in Somalia led to the overthrow of the dictator Siad Barre in 1991. Children as young as eight take part in the fierce and bitter fighting that continues as the powerful clans now battle each other for supremacy. Right when I arrived in Baidoa, they had, um, which is in the south central part of Somalia, they had 300,000 people who had, uh, in the previous months, lost their lives from famine and the fallout of famine. Forced out of their homes by devastation and starvation, many Somali people have fled to makeshift refugee camps. The harsh reality is that with no ceasefire in sight, aid agencies are unlikely to intervene and conditions are likely to worsen. And most of that, if not all of that, was entirely preventable. And, and so for me, I, I quickly began to understand that the scale of the challenge, if we had to go as humanitarian actors, we had to go beyond that short-term thinking of food and water and shelter and blankets and vaccination programs, and to really start to address um, some of the fundamental uh, geopolitical um, 
inequality, um, economic inequality, uh, human rights abuses, particularly against women and children that were taking place if we actually wanted to move the dial forward. A year ago, we all watched with horror as Somali children and their families lay dying by the tens of thousands, dying the slow, agonizing death of starvation, a starvation brought on not only by drought, but also by the anarchy that then prevailed in that country. This past weekend, we all reacted with anger and horror as an armed Somali gang desecrated the bodies of our American soldiers and displayed a captured American pilot all of them soldiers who were taking part in an international effort to end the starvation of the Somali people themselves. These tragic events raise hard questions about our effort in Somalia. Why are we still there? What are we trying to accomplish? How did a humanitarian mission turn violent? And when will our people come home? Our focus was on finding long-term solutions that were driven by the grassroots. So uh, for all of our programs throughout the world, 98% of our staff are local. They come from those communities. They're the ones identifying what their communities need in order to protect children, protect women, and end the violence and, and instability. And we do that through programs that target education, uh, catch-up learning, especially for kids who are in war, who have missed out on years of their schooling so that they can uh, move forward and, and go on to higher education and they don't have those generational deficits as time goes on. We also do it through economic development, making sure young people especially have the skills and the training and women too, that they need to be able to earn an income outside of the armed, for, armed groups. And then the third part of what we do is, is legal defense of women and children. So we have uh, trained lawyers and paralegals and we're actually actively defending women and children whose rights have been violated so that we're cr helping to foster an environment that is uh, accountable and that also creates opportunity for people beyond uh, beyond war and beyond violence and the impact of that has been has been very successful. One day there was very heavy shelling in my town and we couldn't find my brothers and sister. We left under the shelling, under firing, just to save our lives. We kept going until we reached the border. Syria was being destroyed and we were fleeing because we wanted to save our lives. Once we came to Jordan, life was very depressing. We were like flowers or roses pulled from their place and thrown into the desert. We endured the pain of leaving my siblings, the pain of leaving my school, and the pain of loneliness from being away from our country. Then we received the news that one of my brothers had been killed. It is a day I will never forget. Someone we knew came to tell us. I am sorry for your loss. Omar has died. Tears started coming down my face. They burned me. Despite how difficult my brother's death was, we have made it through this crisis. My brother gave me some advice. When you're at the camp, try and benefit from one thing, and that is education. Try to learn a language, strengthen your English. I want to tell the world what's happening in Syria. I want to build my future and finish my education. I want to return to Syria as a strong girl so that Syria may be proud of me. These are my dreams but my situation is still much better than that of many other Syrians. It's time to say enough is enough. 
Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. Join War Child's campaign to protect the it's not. It's not easy. I mean, look, I've been uh, certainly myself detained and harassed um, at a number of different borders. I've been in car ambushes. I um, was very lucky to have been able to survive um, uh, an incursion in Eastern Congo, uh, now meant quite a few years ago, more than a decade ago. Um, so I don't take my security for granted. None of us do t- take our security for granted. Um, but but if you if you're thoughtful, if you're collaborative, if you're consultative, if you are um, respectful, then while there are no guarantees, um, you usually you you have you're you're better received, and and I think that you have better cooperation. That's important. And you touched on it, but talk about where War Child Canada, I know you also, and we were very grateful to have the chance to support you to launch War Child here in America, but talk about the War Child sort of global ecosystem. Yeah, so War Child is basically an international federation, so every office is financially, legally, and operationally independent. For North America, we have War Child Canada and War Child USA, and we support programs in eight different war-torn regions throughout the world, uh, focusing again on women and children in, like I said, education, access to justice, and economic development. Um, the way that we started was around the late 1990s. I'd spent about five years working for a number of different international humanitarian organizations. And again, as a public health doctor, I'm really um, curious about, well, what are the root causes? What leads to these kinds of bad outcomes? How can we... Um, how can we intercede at different points in time to actually prevent these bad outcomes from, from taking place? Because like all public health doctors, and especially in the middle of the COVID pandemic, I think everyone understands this that more than we have previously, but prevention is, is the most critical piece of the strategy. Because once you have a bunch of people who are struggling uh, with, with illness, with disease, um, then at that point, it becomes very difficult to contain. So that has always been my focus. So after five years of, of this kind of field work, recognizing the missed opportunities, we created uh, Warsaw Canada and then subsequently Warsaw USA with that in mind. Um, as it turns out, there were also a couple of entities called Warchild out of the UK and out of Holland. And we came together, we all had slightly different focus. We came together to form an international federation uh, with Warchild USA being the most recent addition. And, um, and so we work collaboratively and cooperatively, but obviously we, we do have different strengths in terms of our programming, uh, different areas of focus. And, uh, and, and we work in a way that is um, complementary, but that doesn't duplicate each other's efforts. And, you mentioned that you're working in eight regions around the world primarily. What, what are those eight and how did you, are those just places that you identified, hey, there's a real problem here, we got to get in here? Yeah, I mean, our, our main focus has been areas, of course, that are conflict um, or highly uh, refugee affected, so large refugee populations. So we've been very active in the Middle East, especially around the Syrian crisis, both in terms of uh, refugees in, in Jordan um, as well as in uh, as well as in Iraq, um, we have hopefully will be operational in Yemen. Uh, we were supposed to already be operational, but because of COVID, things have been a bit uh, a bit delayed there. Um, so big programming in the Middle East, uh, significant programming in Africa, especially in northern Uganda with southern Sudanese refugees, eastern Congo, South Sudan, Darfur Sudan, with Somali refugees in Kenya. And then, um, and then huge programming, significant programming in Afghanistan, and we've been there now for um, for well over a decade, and uh, and are doing some 
some pretty groundbreaking work, not only in terms of education with a focus on girls' education, but working to defend uh, women and girls who have had their rights violated. In many cases, they've been accused of uh, what we call what, what is called locally moral crimes, which you can imagine in Afghanistan if you're a girl, um, you know, to be accused of a, of a moral crime is, is not necessarily a difficult thing. Um, and they'll be put in jail, and so we're working to to help release those uh, release those women and girls and and defend their rights, and have been able to do so quite successfully. So, um, for us, it's really there are 22 different active war zones right now in the world, and so we are currently um, not even in half of the places where we would like to be. Um, but that's you know that's pretty typical for a lot of organizations. Resources are spread thin, especially right now during COVID when. We're understandably so focused on what's happening at home domestically, thinking about what's also happening in other parts of the world can be challenging. And at the same time, we've expanded some of those programs to respond to the COVID crisis in um, in the areas in which we're working because many of them um, are being hit pretty hard and the healthcare infrastructure is, is, is limited. You're literally on the front lines trying to protect the most vulnerable, women and children. Few of us have any sense what it's like in a refugee camp on the Jordan-Syria border, for example. You do know. Take us inside, share a little bit, to the best degree that you can, of what that experience is like, what you find when you get there. Uh, and I want to get to how you're making a difference, which I think is just incredible. We often get lost in, you know, stories that there's no hope here, there's nothing that can be done. That's not the case. You are on the front lines making a difference, helping people. But take us inside that experience. I, I picked Jordan, Syria, uh, but you, you pick, you know, any one of the many, many places where you've been. Well, every every refugee camp is, is different, Matt. So, for example, um, It'll depend on how many refugees are actually in the area and how well supplied they are, right? So um, at the Jordan-Syria border, you have people who, because it becomes quite hot and then quite cold during the winter months, they're usually in more um, permanent structures, if not tents, then they might be in some, some portable shelters. And you'll have uh, upwards of you know tens of thousands of people who are crowded into a very small area who are all sharing the same washroom facilities, um, same showers, and whose kids in many instances have been um, not only out of school for months and months because of the violence, but also deeply traumatized. As you might imagine quite traumatized by that time, the sounds that they heard, the bombing, and of course, years of living under siege. We met one woman, for example, who told us that she lost her one-year-old baby simply because she couldn't exit um, the area she was living in because of the fighting, because uh, sometimes rebels wouldn't let them out. And these are kids who have experienced aerial bombardments. In some cases, they have seen loved ones, sometimes their own parents who have been gunned down in front of them who have been harassed, girls who have um, experienced sexual violence, it's tremendous sexual violence, women as well. So the scale of need is enormous. The level of trauma is enormous. And then on top of that, you have great uncertainty. It's, these are, this is a situation where people's lives are effectively on hold and they are wholly dependent on um, whatever infrastructure is, has been built around them for uh, for their food, for their water, for their sanitation, 
for um, for an, an income and and everything else. So um, that's that's kind of the scene. It it also means that especially at a moment like now during the pandemic, because of the level of overcrowding, because of the shared resources, um, because there's so little opportunity that that people are uniquely vulnerable to to what's going on um, and to to contracting COVID um, and the complications from COVID. So, for example, one of the things that we're doing in um, in South Sudan and in Uganda and Eastern Congo is that we're offering distance-based educational programs in Eastern Congo and Uganda, which we do through radio, um, which we're one of the world's leading experts on this, which is a program that was developed because kids in war zones weren't able to travel to school because the risk of violence and sexual violence, especially for girls, was so high. So a few years ago, uh, we were able to pioneer this program where we actually sent through radio um, school lessons to local communities. Uh, We had local teaching assistants that we deployed to work with the kids who were not able to get to school. Again, very, very low cost initiative. Uh, we followed those kids for 18 months, and we had higher graduation rates, higher matriculation rates from those programs than the national average. So in the midst of COVID, when more and more kids, particularly in an African context, are being held back from school um, because, because of the risk to them, then we've been asked to expand that program, which we have done in a number of, of our countries and in some of the refugee camps in which we're working, so that we can provide safe ways for kids to continue to learn um, for their parents to have programs that that support them um, and that also support their mental health. So that that's kind of an example of of you have real challenges in operating in these environments, but with a little innovation and a little ingenuity, you can you can actually address these and um, and 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 provide I think really comprehensive alternatives. One of the challenges uh, for the average person. They have no real feel for what's going on. They might see something, you know, uh, on their phone, on their iPad. There might be something, you know, our news is largely domestically focused. Um, You know, in America in particular here, you know, the BBC, I think, does a much better job. Sky does a much much better job of bringing in global perspective here. uh, There's an inward focus to what we're doing. And Lord knows right now. This country has plenty of problems. There's almost a sense that nothing can be done, that these problems are impossible to solve. You've seen tremendous progress and results. Could you share some of those stories and give us some reasons for optimism, even as we are, as you said, in the midst of you know, a world where there are 22 active war zones, you know, right at this moment in time. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, there's never a shortage of, I think, um, inspirational examples and stories from the work that we're doing. It can be, it can be hard, it can be grueling, it can be um, overwhelming. But when you do receive those stories, you're reminded of, of why you get up and do what you do every single day. And uh, so, for example, I mentioned the work in refugee camps and uh, some of our accelerated learning, distance-based learning programs in uh, in northern Uganda, where we've been on the ground for many years. We are working with southern Sudanese refugees. This has um, there are more than a million southern Sudanese refugees in northern Uganda right now. Um, they've arrived over the last few years because of the escalation of violence in South Sudan. 
And many of those young people arrive um, with their families. They've been out of school for years. They have uh, witnessed atrocities. Some of the young boys were forcibly recruited. Some of the young girls have experienced sexual violence. And when we um, interview and meet a lot of these kids initially, they are um, withdrawn. They can be angry. They can feel hopeless. They have nightmares. They um, even have difficulty just maintaining eye contact with you. And then they register for our locally run program, which allows them to catch up on their learning. It's a kind of a compressed curriculum where the kids will do two years over one year and get back into the appropriate grade level. Um, and again, there are two mechanisms for that, either in person when that's possible or also through the, the distance-based learning program. And then we, we uh, you know, follow these kids and a few years later, they're talking about how um, they want to go on to higher education and they want to be doctors and lawyers and journalists and they want to be teachers and they want to run their country. Um, and it's and it's remarkable. I mean, it's transformational kind of change. And they'll even tell you that if they had stayed in South Sudan, that they probably would have been fighting with one of the armed groups because what else was there for them? And they'll talk about their friends who who were left behind, who did exactly that and who didn't even survive and their family members didn't survive. And to see that kind of um, just just, you know, again, generational change that can come from this, um, that you can disrupt that cycle of violence and poverty, that these are, again, local models, local solutions, locally driven, locally led. Um, you know, this is this is what people are asking for. They're not asking for handouts. They're not asking for, um, you know, short term solutions. They want the opportunity to rebuild their lives um, and to restart their lives, and to do that, they they need education and they need economic opportunity. It's not it's not complicated stuff, but it takes time. So so those are a few you know examples of of how um, remarkable and inspiring it is. And and even kids who um, in Afghanistan who were being held, young girls who were trafficked, uh, and then who are arrested, but the Johns are not arrested; they're arrested and thrown in jail for moral crimes who, as a result of our access to justice work, are, are released. Um, they're able to go through a, a transitional program where they're supported, where they get education, where they get um, access to livelihoods. They can get back into their communities, reintegrated with their families, and, and move on with their lives and begin the long process of recovery. It's, it's, it's really remarkable. And it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot. And I get that right now we're we're all focused on needs at home because it's 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 just overwhelming what everyone here is is going through and especially in the United States. Uh, but some of those challenges are even deeper in parts of the world where we're working. And and I think one of the things that we have all come to appreciate as a result of this pandemic is that as long as it's happening anywhere in the world, it is happening everywhere in the world. And so we we really do have to think about ways that we can help and support beyond our borders as well. But you're also a physician uh, and you teach, you practice. What is your take from that vantage point on where we are right now? And as our neighbor to the north looking down upon the US from Toronto, what's the take in Canada on what's going on in America right now? I think that, and uh, I hope I don't. I would. I would never presume to speak for all Canadians, so I can. I can only speak from my own perspective as a public health doctor. I'm. I'm amazed at the extent to which um, issues of basic public health 
prevention that are in all of our best interests. It's in our best interest to protect ourselves, to protect those we love, and to protect, you know, even our neighbors, that so much of that has been politicized. The simple act of wearing a mask. You wear a mask and you wash your hands because it's safer for you and it's safer for everyone around you. Um, it's not a political statement. It's just a public health fact. To today's about face from President Trump on the question of face masks. After months of mixed messages, today the president said, quote, masks are good and that he'd wear one in a crowd. But without a nationwide order making masks mandatory in public, health officials say they fear cases will keep soaring. And so, um, you know, you can operate from a point of view of, of uh, extreme individualism and say, well, perhaps, you know, because I'm, I'm younger, I'm at lower risk, I don't have anybody in my household that I'm especially worried about. Um, and so I want to be able to engage in these high risk activities. I want to be able to go to a bar and party with my friends. I want to be able to have like, um, you know, massive barbecues and be in my house and do all this kind of stuff. And, you know, and to a certain extent, yes, that that is your right, but it isn't your right to endanger the lives of everyone else in the process. So the most simple thing that you can do uh, in relation to that is 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 to wear a mask, because then your risk isn't transferred to other people. So from 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 my perspective as a as a public health doctor watching um, and we've had a certain amount of that in the United in, in Canada, you know, a certain amount of people just getting angry and belligerent when they're told that um, they should mask before they go into a store. But but I just think a lot of this comes down to to common sense. And, and do we want to get through this? And how quickly do we want to get through this? And, and, um, you know, what are we prepared to sacrifice in, in order to keep um, our communities safe? And, and what's being asked of us isn't isn't a lot. It really it really isn't a lot uh, in the grand scheme of things. But um, so that that is one thing that I that I do notice, and and I and I do wish in that context that um, that the, the leadership uh, in the United States, in particular, provided um, more direction um, and and clarity to people so that they can make safer, sound choices. Yeah, no, it's been uh, challenging, and I think you know we all want the economy to be open. That's not a Democratic issue or a Republican issue or anything in between. It's, you know, what do we need to do to get there so we can open and stay open? Um, That's it. You know, you, you're now seeing places having to, you know, roll back. Uh, and um, it's our own fault. Uh, well, I mean, I think that, that, that you know, to, to your point, like if you, we, we all want the economy to stay open. Everybody does. People need, people need jobs. Um, and, and people need jobs in order to uh, provide for themselves and provide for their families and keep their families safe, right? So it's, to me, um, the easiest way that you keep the economy open is to do simple preventative measures. So, so why, would you, why would you risk that? You know, you, when you're walking around not wearing a mask um, and getting angry about it and, and thinking it's some sort of like misguided political statement about, I don't know, your individualism or something, uh, what you're ultimately doing is, is setting everyone back and creating fewer choices, not more choices for yourself. So I, I don't get that. I, I, I really don't. And, and I think that, um, that the media too have a responsibility here to, to clearly communicate and, and uh, to provide the right kind of information. Science is science. Public health is public health. It's not, you know, we can have debates around uh, as the science evolves, like how long does immunity last? What's the likelihood of a vaccine? How long is the vaccine going to take? You know, some of these things are definitely unknowns, 
but there are some real knowns. And one of the real knowns is the efficacy of, of mask wearing. Um, so I, I personally don't understand why we wouldn't do everything humanly possible to, to follow those prescriptions every single day. Part of what you do when you're out on the front lines is um, uh, you're involved in distribution of vaccines and helping people who need treatments that are readily available get them. Looking at this massive job that we have ahead of us globally to develop a vaccine and then distribute that vaccine widely, how confident are you in our ability to do that? It seems like there are a number of trials that are going well that sometime in the next, you know, inside of six months, which I guess is faster than most people thought possible, seems like something's going to pop that will be deemed to be safe and effective. How big is the delta to go from that laboratory, whether it's in Oxford or California or, or Vancouver, wherever it might be, to get that around the world? It's a monumental task, Matt, for sure. Um, the results, especially from the Oxford trial, have been extremely encouraging in terms of the, the immune response. Um, I, and I haven't, to be honest, I mean, even though when I worked for, with uh, UNICEF, I was involved in a lot of vaccine uh, cold chain and vaccine distribution related work. Um, it's not something that I do as much of now, but I can comment from a public health perspective. I think that to, to ramp up production, it will come down to the extent to which we're willing to work cooperatively and to share those patents um, once we do find solutions that are proven to be effective. And, and so if that happens and you can have mass mobilization of manufacturing of the vaccine, that will certainly make a huge difference. But the other thing we need to remember is that, unfortunately, in these situations, we, we tend to, from a geopolitical perspective, become... Um, very focused on ourselves, right? So, and we saw this around PPE, around the personal protective equipment. We saw this around um, oxygen and everything else where people just started closing down their borders, hoarding what they had and, and holding on to it, even as the crisis was hit, hitting Italy and they were desperately short of supplies and, and elsewhere. Um, that has actually hit parts of Africa, for example, extremely hard, where it's been very difficult for people to get even the basic things that they need to be able to protect themselves. And I am worried in the context of the vaccine that, that those same patterns will repeat themselves, that wealthier nations will immediately move to, to buy up all the supply, um, and it will be very harder for poorer countries to compete in that equation, and so that the, the pandemic will last a lot longer there. When in reality, what we should be doing is we should be prioritizing the high-risk groups, um, especially people over the age of, of 60, definitely people over the age of 70, people in long-term care homes, people in hospitals, people on the front lines. Um, they should be the ones that are the first to receive a safe and effective vaccine. And then we can look at expanding to, to other groups um, as, as more supplies become available. So you talk about... Um global cooperation as being a big driver uh, going forward. Right across town from me sits the United Nations. Um, the United States, under this administration, um, has largely withdrawn us from a lot of these global institutions uh, and uh, somewhat surreal uh, was the decision to pull out of the WHO completely. 
you've worked with the UN, you've worked with a lot of these organizations. Give us your objective take on their intent and effectiveness. You know, the WHO in particular has been villainized by our president. Um, what's really happening out there? That's, that's always tough, right? Because it's, I try to avoid gross generalizations. I think that big bureaucracies like the UN and the WHO, they sometimes move very slowly by conspicuous design, right? They are um, international cooperative entities. They rely on funding from those entities. So it's automatically going to be subjected to a certain amount of political uh, influence in some cases you you might even also see a level of political interference um, but they are necessarily pretty cautious um, and and not terribly mobile right so so it isn't surprising to me and I certainly um, you know have have criticized uh, some of the operations of the UN even some of the operations of WHO um, so it certainly isn't surprising that it might take them longer to state the obvious than, local public health officers, for example, or even our own like national public health officers, um, because they have so many stakeholders and because they, they are trying to navigate all of that. At the same time, um, despite how slow they can be and how challenging they can be, they're still our best defense um, as a global community against the, the perceived threats that we are all facing. You know, the worst thing you can do from a public health perspective um, when confronting something on a scale of COVID uh, is to withdraw from international bodies, to not be at the table when information is shared, to not be sharing your own experience and your own need, to not be negotiating as part of a, a global process for what you understandably need to be able to protect your own civilian population. So to me, that makes it's counterintuitive. It makes absolutely no sense. And you can turn around and say, well, a country that's as big as the United States um, with the technological and scientific innovations that it has can afford to go it alone, that you can you know, find your own vaccine, you can acquire your own supplies, you can manufacture your own supplies. And so I understand um, you know, that tendency and that, and that, that sort of urge um, that if you think that you don't need to be part of something bigger, um, then why would you throw money at it? But the reality is that there is still a lot to be gained from that process. And, and I don't know why um, you, you would take that risk, to be honest. Like we, you know, this is something unprecedented. None of us have faced this before. Uh, we don't know where the solution is going to come from. We don't know if a solution is going to come. So, so why would you not share and participate uh, with some of, the, with some of the, the best minds on these issues? I, I don't understand it. Yeah. And I understand why politically... Um, the president has taken to referring to the virus as the Chinese virus, the Kung flu, uh, one of his uh, real jewels, um, and talks about how China never should have let this leave China. It's, by the way, it's a disease without question, has more names than any disease in history. I can name Kung flu. I can name... 19 different versions of names. That was not really scientifically possible, was it? And, and that's the problem, right? I mean, we, the, 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 the thing is that these viruses can emerge, frankly, anywhere um, at any point in time. And, and, you know, so 
if you stigmatize people, if you stigmatize a country, what you're going to get is less cooperation, not more, exactly when you need it, right? So we, it's in everyone's best interest to know um, where this virus originated from, how it originated, because those are key to understanding what's going to be most effective in, in managing it. We also know that China is significantly ahead of everybody in terms of their own um, containment of the virus, their, their management of the virus. So why would we then just try to um, belittle and isolate as opposed to engage and understand and learn from those experiences? There will be time down the road for us all to look at what, were, what went well, what didn't go well. Um, you know, did China conceal critical information at a really important time that put other countries throughout the world at risk? These are really important questions. But when we're faced with the immediate onslaught of containing this thing, um, what the last thing you want is to be poking different nation states in the eye. Instead, what you want is maximum cooperation and maximum engagement. At least that's that's my perspective, because the worst thing that can happen is for people to start concealing the truth. And um, and that 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 ultimately puts more and more of us at risk. Yeah, no, it does. And it just prolongs this all for all of us. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the challenges that you've faced to build the War Child brand, both in Canada and America. Um, we first met through, I think it was our old friend Paul Lavoie, yeah. um, then with Taxi, and there was an event, I think it was at YNR. Yep. This must be seven, eight, nine years ago. It's and, seven, yeah. Yeah. And when, from my own vantage point, if you're in the room and you hear Dr. Samantha Nutt speak, you immediately get it. You want to be a soldier in her army. Um, but you're one person. You can get to just so many people, be in just so many places. So talk about the challenge of building the brand, where you've succeeded, where you've fallen short, and you know what you're looking to get done, looking ahead to the rest of you know, 2020, 21, and the post-pandemic world. Yeah, I mean, again, like, I'm, and I'm so grateful to you, Matt, for all of your support and the opportunities that you've provided and the introductions that you've made. I mean, you've just been so in incredibly generous and uh, and supportive, and I'm, we're we're all really really grateful. It's you know, it's it's tough. It's tough. Um, it's not the first time I have had the experience of trying to build up uh, an organization from scratch because I had to do that in Canada with War Child. Um, but, you know, our ambitions for the United States were always around um, engaging Americans in the conversation around the global issues that we deal with all the time, um, uh, making sure that there were opportunities for Americans who, who really believe in this kind of um, global view of some of the challenges that we're facing to, to invest in some long-term solutions at the field level that help reduce um, the threat of conflict and poverty. And when you think about even just everything that's transpired over the last 20 plus years now, um, it's Americans and American soldiers who've been on the front lines of, of dealing with uh, and trying to contain some of these crises. And so preventing armed violence, preventing war uh, is in everyone's best interest. And so that was for us um, engaging Americans in these conversations and, and helping to sort of outline where they might be able to make a difference was, was critically important. It is a long haul. We're an organization, we're a, a, a small organization. Um, we're still trying to really uh, become better known in the United States. 
And, um, and, but that's okay. I mean, we're not aiming to be a huge um, UNICEF type organization or plan or world vision. They do what they do. They do it very, very well. We're not aiming to duplicate any of their efforts. Uh, we're aiming to appeal to a cross section of people who are uh, compassionate and engaged, who have a global worldview um, and, and who are really fundamentally concerned about issues of, of inequality and, and poverty and armed violence. And so um, we've been astonished at the level of support. We have some great, um, uh, uh, like various American um, celebrities who've come forward, Tom Sadowski, Amanda Siegfried, and others who have been supporting us in those efforts, running events prior to COVID, comedy nights, that kind of thing, to just help get the message out and to help fundraise. Um, and we've also enjoyed some support from uh, the U.S. State Department for our overseas programs, which has been, uh, I think, you know, a, a great help to the work that we're trying to achieve. So, so it's 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 tough. People see the name War Child, they think it's automatically an extremely political organization, um, but it's not. I mean, we what we do is in the title. We deal with and work with kids who are living with war, and try to create, um, help, try to help them in the process of of creating better lives and finding peace. And so, um, frankly, I think that it's, it's not at all political. It's, um, it's, it's something that it is worth investing in. All right. This was terrific. Was there anything that we should have touched on that we didn't? No, but I would say that if anybody's interested in um, helping us or learning more, then it's warchildusa.org is the website, or they can just pop us a, pop us a note and we're, we're happy to answer their questions and steward them in the right direction. Samantha, stay safe. Bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy.